0: Well, good morning again, church. I want to focus our attention to God's word this morning as we look at the resurrection account. So, if you have a Bible, I want to read about this resurrection account in the Gospel book of John in verse 1 through 18 in chapter 20. Listen to this remarkable account of that first Easter resurrection morning. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. I invite you to just pray in your hearts quietly that God would speak to you. I will pray for us collectively. If that's a new thing to you, it's a simple, short prayer that says, God, would you just speak Truth to my heart, you pray and I'll pray for us collectively. Father, speak through your word. We thank you for it. Thank you for this account which we celebrate today, the resurrection account, this remarkable thing that happened in history. Father, that we would know Christ in this moment, that we would identify with these disciples and Mary, and Father, that our hearts would be challenged and changed, and that our hope would be restored. And we pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said. So Easter Sunday morning is always a difficult sermon for me. And I'm sure it's that way for pastors in many churches across our country and across the globe. Because on Easter Sunday, there is this pressure, if you will, to preach a great Easter sermon. And in a new one, in a fresh way, in a a different way, a powerful way. Why is that pressure there? And it's unfair pressure, but it's because this is one of the highest attended Sundays in all of the calendar year. Why? Because everyone goes to church on Easter. That's just what you do. Now, that's certainly how I grew up in going to our home church and worshiping Christ in this day, growing up in a church that celebrated the resurrection, that Jesus rose on this day, that the grave was empty, that he conquered death. And it's a day that we set aside to celebrate that, that Christ himself resurrected himself and left the tomb empty. Now, for most people, that is not a foreign concept. Most of us would say, we believe that, that Jesus did that. But this morning, I want to challenge you, all of us, with that thought. Do I believe in the resurrection? Truly believe in it and its implications for me, not just this historical nature of it, but its implications for me. You see, I think there's pressure too, because there's always two types of people, and this is not different than any other Sunday, mind you, as I've already said. There are those who sit, and arguably even in this room, who believe in the resurrection, and those who don't. Both are present here. Every Sunday, not just Easter, is that the case in most churches. People who believe in the resurrection and its implications, and those who don't Now, some would say, well, I think that's kind of crazy because I'm obviously here. And I would challenge that. I don't want you to be confused today. I want more than anything to be ultra, ultra clear with the gospel. Maybe more than any other morning to be ultra clear with the gospel. You see, at Real Hope, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ every week. And today is no different than that. But today, I want to be ultra clear with that message. Now, years ago, people either believed in the resurrection historically, or they didn't. And usually, if they believed in the historical account, they pretty much believed the rest of the Bible was true. And then there was those who just didn't. Now, today, it's a little bit different than that. It's not that simple. Today, in our culture, is different. Some will only believe in the resurrection historically if they find it helpful to them. Pragmatic in nature. Or relative truth. In other words, if they feel like believing in that has some value to them personally, like gaining heaven or being in good standing with God, then yes, I'll believe that. Now I'll be getting to John chapter 20 soon, but I want to read two verses to set this up in our mindset before I do. Because Paul, the apostle Paul, encountered a similar problem when he preached the gospel to the people in Athens about 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection. He was preaching the gospel to philosophy lovers and those who worship many gods, none of them, mind you, the true God. And he said towards the end of this sermon in Acts 17, 30 and 31, this is what he said. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul wanted to be ultra clear to his gospel listeners that day that this gospel was a gospel of hope and that God had done something in the resurrection, that he didn't want to have people who listened to be ignorant. He said that we have assurance because of the resurrection. Assurance from what? This is where the true belief comes in. This is the gauge of whether you truly believe in the resurrection. The assurance that you, the confidence that you and I have that we will stand in judgment and have a right standing with God because of our repentance from sin and our faith of Christ's work on the cross. And that true repentance is true change and that change is produced hope and this hope is marked by the resurrection. Paul did not want us to be ignorant. I do not want us to be ignorant to that. There is a gauge by which you can tell if I believe in the resurrection is do I have the hope of Jesus Christ? And I want to show us today that through John 20, that that belief, true belief in the resurrection of Jesus transforms a life from hopelessness to restored hope. And restored hope, friends, is a game changer. It always gives life purpose, bears spiritual fruit, and sends one out on kingdom mission. And so my goal today as we look at John 20 is super simple. I want to infuse the hope of Jesus into you. I want to infuse the hope of Christ into you that if you don't know him, that you would give your life wholly to him. And if you do know him, that you would continue to walk in trusting him, that you would have the assurance you can stand confident in judgment because of the work of Christ. That's what I hope to accomplish to show you that this resurrection account is one of hope. Now, it's one, as we'll see, of challenged hope and restored hope, not for just all Christians, but for you personally. And I chose John's gospel account. All of the gospels record the resurrection day account, but I chose John's gospel particularly because it is personal, super personal, as we'll focus in on the life of Mary Magdalene. It starts with her, moves to the other disciples, and then back to her. But I want to jump in to the text, and you'll see at every moment in this account, personally, hope is challenged. And who can't identify with that in their world? It says in verse 1 that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, you have to know here that it was still dark was probably between 3 and 6 a.m. You see, on the Sabbath day, the day before they couldn't do anything, the disciples would have been probably mourning and grieving in shock of what had just happened. And Mary here and these other women, the accounts say, they want to get there as soon as they can, to do preparation stuff for the burial, something they couldn't do on the Sabbath. So between somewhere between three and six, they likely were even up all night over the events of this weekend. She rushes to the tomb with these other women. And she sees that the stone is rolled away. In verse two, you see that. But what does she do? And I want you to latch onto this. She runs right to human conclusion. How often do we do that? She assumes a lot of what has happened. Someone stole Jesus as if it wasn't bad enough that that he has been killed and crucified. How, How could they do this? She runs right to a human conclusion and assumption. The worst case scenarios. All the while missing what God was doing in the background behind all the scenes. So often is the case with you and I when we find ourselves in what we think are hopeless situations. Now this account doesn't say she went in. All other accounts allude to that fact. In Luke, we see that because we know that, that in Luke, he accounts to that. It says, he is not here. He has risen. The angels tell them that. See where he has been laid, pointing them towards the evidence. So we can safely assume here that Mary went in, which is, makes this story more strange in its nature. She went in and saw the empty tomb. Well, look what she does after that. We don't know whether she truly latched on and saw the, the grave clothes there, uh, maybe emotion came over her, maybe she was in shock, maybe spiritual blindness, but, but maybe, maybe something happened where she missed it. And us, like Mary, sometimes we see things and we're not quick to believe them for whatever reason. So it says in verse 2 that she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, who records his account. He was the disciple Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Again, she runs to human conclusion. She says, they've taken the Lord. Hopelessness is around her. Panic is around her. We need to find him. So she panics in the moment, and she runs and tells Peter and John. So this would be a great trivia question for uh, all those that know disciples. Which disciple was faster? Which disciple was faster? John. John is much younger than Peter, and so he, it's interesting, as John is the one writing this account, he makes a point. This is like a men's go-kart thing. He makes a point to show that he's faster in the story. But what's interesting in verse 3 is he doesn't go in first. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb both of them were running together but the other disciple outran Peter John and reached the tomb first but John did not go in first Peter stops there and they see Peter goes in and or Peter goes in and they see the grave clothes and they witness it the body hasn't been taken it says in verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the clothes laying there, but listen to the detail in verse 7. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That's intentional why that's mentioned as evidence. The body hasn't been taken. If it had, we know the clothes would be gone too. This could only be the work of Jesus. Do you have stories of that being true in your life where things have happened where you say this could only be the work of Jesus? Maybe you found yourself in hopeless situations and something happens where God reveals himself. I've had many times in my life where I could attribute that only to God. Now some of us miss that and we'll see that Mary misses that And some of us often miss when God is revealing himself and showing himself in our life in hopeless situations and we're missing it. We're just spiritual blind. We don't know if we're overcome with the emotion, whatever it is. You see, faith is hope linked. It is seeing the things that we hope in, not the things that we see in the flesh all the time. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Sometimes in our life, we have to trust in things we want to be and they don't look that way. And such is an account like this morning. They don't look that way, especially to Mary. And she needs to see past that hopelessness to what God is doing. The resurrection is a little bit different in Hebrews 11, 1, in the fact that there is evidence before these disciples, historical evidence. And John sees it. And it says in verse 8, he believes it. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. See that competitiveness there. Also went in and he saw and believed. He saw it. He remembered what Jesus had taught and he trusted in it that moment. He saw the evidence that this is the only work of God. This could only be Christ himself risen from the dead and instantly he believed. Verse 9 links the scriptures to aiding in that belief. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It links that, which is often the case with the word of God. Many people communicate to me in my line of work, if you will, that they struggle spiritually with faith. I meet with people often. They come and say, I'm just really struggling with my faith to trust God. And almost immediately the first question I ask them, as have you been reading your Bible? Have you been reading the Word of God? Why do I ask that question? Because I know that it aids in belief. I will often ask that because I, it aids in our faith, seeing spiritually, because you and I are creatures of human circumstance. We see what we see, and it's just hopeless. This is just, things are going on in my life, and we see this. And Mary is faced with that in this same way. You see, the disciples leave this scene, arguably John and Peter believing and running off to tell the others, but here is Mary. She stays. Remember, this is a personal account here. Here we find Mary is just sobbing at the tomb. She's weeping, distraught with emotion. Now sometimes, as often is the case with God, and maybe it's your case right now, He will often use very difficult circumstances, very sad circumstances in our life to get our attention. And I think that's what he's doing here with Mary. He will often use very hopeless situations, what we see as hopeless, to reveal himself. He will often bring us to our end when feelings of hopelessness seem to settle in to show us that we need him. Why? Why does he do that? I don't know all the ways. But I think it's because he's trying to strip us of our self-pride and self sufficiency. The fact that we as creatures, stained in sin, say we don't need God. We can trust ourselves. And God challenges that in moments in our life where he says, all right, here's your circumstance. Why does he do that? I believe it's because he loves us. Most of us would think that's a terrible way to control the world, the universe. I think it's a great way. I think he does it because he's good and he loves us. He wants us to know him and know that he wants to rescue us from our sin and hopeless earth that we're covered in. And he wants to show Mary joy in sorrow. So here, Mary is sobbing at the tomb, which if you just read the Bible for as it is, you can just dive into this text. And she's doing this, and as she's weeping, she looks back in the tomb. Can you imagine yourself? She takes another look in verse 11. It says, she stooped to look into the tomb. And what does she find there in verse 12? It says two angels in white sitting there, the body of Jesus where it lay, one at the head and one at the foot. Two angels are there right in the place. Think about this, friends. Two angels are there right in the place where Mary's hopes and dreams have been dashed. Think about how God's revealing himself here. They're sitting right in the spot of Mary's worst sorrow, there to tell her something. This is perspective, of course, and they ask this question in verse 13. Why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? These angels have a different perspective. You see, from the presence of heaven, tears over the empty tomb should not fall. These angels know this. That's why they ask, why are you weeping? They know this, but from the perspective of earth, it makes perfect sense. To Mary, it makes perfect sense why she's crying. They've taken her Lord. She wants to find him. You see, Mary is still looking for a body. It's at this moment in verse 14, you see another person enters in. Having said this, having made her claim, there's, having said, well, here's why I'm crying. This is what's going on. Another person enters And she turns around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Remember, in her emotion, she's clueless about this. We read this story. We know it's Jesus standing there, but Mary in this moment does not know. And he asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? Look at verse 15. But he adds something to it that the angels did not add, and it's something very profound that I want to challenge all of us with. He says, Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? That's what I'll ask all of us today. This is not just a question Jesus is asking, this is an attitude of living Jesus is pointing out in all of us. He asks, Why are you weeping? Confirm with the angels, I'm standing here. There's no reason to cry. But then he asks something way more profound Who are you seeking? Who is your heart chasing? as if to say, how are you living your life? Is that what continues to cause hopelessness and emptiness in you because you're seeking things that will never satisfy? Is that why tears constantly flow in your life because your perspective hasn't changed? That's what Jesus is asking her heart in this moment. I recently read a story of a pastor who performed two funerals in a day, and I subscribed to these articles, and he was writing. He had this strangest day where he had performed two funerals in the same day, just worked out that he could do one. He said, one was so polarized from the other. One was at a funeral home with about 12 to 15 people around, and it was just sorrow, heavy sorrow and hopelessness. And later in the day, it was one of the people that were from his church who who had known Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And there was hundreds of people gathered around and they were sad, but there was joy and singing and worshiping. He said those two events were polarizing for him. He found hopelessness in this one funeral, knowing that they did not know Jesus, that they were seeking something else in life and one where even in death they could rejoice because of the hope they had in a Savior. Mary still does not recognize Jesus in this moment, which I acknowledge there are some probably in here who sit in that same category. You don't know him because you've never sought after him. And Mary's problem here is common with many of the disciples, many of us, in fact. She did not hold a big enough view of Jesus. She's still searching for a corpse instead of a victorious Lord. And Mary's response is ironic in nature in verse 15. She supposes the gardener is the one responsible for Jesus not being there. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. The irony of that moment, because it is in fact Jesus, the gardener, who is responsible for him not being there. The fact he is risen. Now Jesus isn't recognized here because he isn't the same. He has passed from death to life. Some scholars argue this. Maybe it was the way that his beard had been plucked out. Maybe it was the disfigurement. Maybe it was a shock from what they once knew to after he was beaten and killed. But no, he's in a new glorified body. He is not the same. He is not in his human, listen to this, humiliated form any longer. It is the equivalent now of being in the presence and the glory of the Lord. This ought to restore hope. Jesus didn't just raise from physical death, like that of Lazarus earlier in John's account. He rose over spiritual death. That is a hope restorer. And then this most profound thing happens when when Jesus speaks the name of Mary in verse 16. Look at this. Jesus said to her, and he's already spoken words, and she doesn't recognize him, but then he says, Mary. And in an instant, she turns and recognizes her teacher. Jesus knows our names, his sheep. This is a hope restorer. John 10, 3 and 4 reads this way. To him, the gatekeeper opened. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Think about this in John 10 later in 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand, which begs the question for all of us. Has Jesus called you by name? Wherever you sit spiritually, has he ever said your name? Has he ever called you? Many of us have had that experience in our conversion where we've heard our name called and our shepherd knows his sheep's name. I can't help but think of Psalm 35 when Mary hears her name. That sorrow, that weeping may last for the night, but the joy comes in the morning. In that moment Mary's heart is changed. This awareness of Jesus's love and presence causes Mary to throw herself down in the worship of Jesus, at his feet, clinging to him in worship. Friends, that is the heart of God in action when he calls our names. And Mary hears her name called, and she clings to Jesus. But Jesus's response is a bit strange in verse 17. He says, do not cling to me, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now this can be understood in two ways. One, Jesus had not yet returned to the Father and is still going to be with them a while. So maybe he's saying, Mary, just chill out for a second here. I'm going to be here for a while. So you don't need to like hug me all this time. But I think the more appropriate understanding is that he was pushing her towards something greater as he would push us towards something greater. He says this relationship will be different now. He was helping Mary understand that up until now, Jesus had been known to them by human touch and human form as God with us, but his resurrection and ascension is implying a new kind of relationship to be shared with all disciples in every age and place, that of a faith union through the Holy Spirit that he will send, as if to say, Mary, I'm sending someone that will be with you forever. This is the relationship you and I who are in Christ have with Jesus. It's a spiritual one of personal presence and the Holy Spirit living in us. That's a marker of how we know Jesus has called our name as the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But Jesus does something profoundly more. He says something to Mary that all of us should hear today. In her joy of seeing her resurrected king, he commissions her. He wipes her tears, infusing in her confidence and restoring hope, only to send her back out. He essentially says, go back and announce. Now that's not written clearly in the text, but he says, go to my brothers and say to them, go tell them I am ascending. Go say to them, I've risen. She should not go on clinging to Jesus and enjoying the blessing of it only when there is a group of broken men and women around her no great distance away, who are just as much in need of hope as she is. Think about your neighbors and friends, your family. This application of the church, our church, is a direct one. You see, tragically, over the centuries, the Christian community has shown a far greater interest in sitting at Jesus' feet, clinging and holding on to him in the comfort of his presence than in going out into the world to share the good news of the risen and victorious Lord with the broken and needy hearts right around you. Think about that. Jesus has restored her hope, and he says, don't keep it all for yourself. There are people, even close, those disciples, who may be broken and hurting and need to know, I am a victorious Lord. This is so typical of the Jesus is just for me attitude in our culture, and he tells her to go back and tell people about the victorious Christ in his kingly reign, Go and tell others that they can trust in the power of the resurrection, that they can trust in a God of hope. Go and restore hope in others as I have restored it in you. And Mary's response ought to be our response in verse 18. She says, I have seen the Lord. She went and announced that to the disciples. Think about the implication that is for us when our hope is restored, that we ought to go and restore it in others and say, I have seen the Lord. I wonder if you will leave here with that mission today, wherever you go, with whatever Easter lunch gathering you go to, where there are people around you that do not have hope. Will you go and tell them, I have seen the Lord. I know he has risen. Will your journey be a challenge every day, following Jesus with things unseen? You bet. Do you have reason to continue on in it? You bet. You see, friends, the resurrection gives us assurance that we can have hope because we know that Jesus lives, and we can have hope if we place our faith in him and accept his free gift of salvation, his atoning death on the cross for our sins, that we can walk in his presence forever. Will there be sad things in life? You bet, of course, but I hope we acknowledge that Jesus is making all of those sad things become untrue because of his resurrection. I want to leave us with this, and I think of this hymn and the richness of this words that we can trust in the power of the resurrection today. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth living just because he lives. Do you know this God of hope today? Do you know He holds the future, that He holds your future? Do you know Christ in the power of His resurrection? I hope that you do, and I hope that you respond to that in faith. If you haven't already, this day, let's pray together. Father in heaven, I praise you for this remarkable gospel account of the resurrection. Father, I praise you for the interaction that Mary had with Jesus, that this very personal encounter happened. And Father, that this is personal for all of us, that you want to meet us where we are and draw us out of death into life. Father, thank you that you are a God of hope, that you restore hope. And I pray for anyone in this room that you would infuse the hope of Jesus into them, that if they do not know you, that they would place their faith in Christ right now, repenting of sin and trusting by faith in the risen King Jesus. And Father, for those of us that have placed our faith as we'll celebrate this meal together, that we would be infused with hope to continue on, knowing that we don't need to weep through this journey. Yes, there will be sad things in life and we will experience human earthly sorrow, but Father, that we would have a joy that radiates from us because of the hope that we have in Jesus. Help us to go out of this place today and tell everyone we know that I have seen the Lord, that he has risen, he has risen indeed. May you be glorified and honored. May you be praised and may you just challenge and examine our hearts now as we meet and celebrate this memorial meal of Christ's death, his payment for us, that you be glorified. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. I want to leave you from these words Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 as we leave this place that we would be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. God is a hope restorer. Go and proclaim it to the world. Have a blessed Easter Sunday and go in peace. Amen.